Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel, Mercer County. Enjoy the message. So as I said, we are in Mark. Let's pray for our time. Lord, we do pray for these men, uh, myself, these others that will be heading out to uh, New England. And Lord, we pray for those uh, various prisons in New Hampshire and in Maine and in Massachusetts that uh, we'll be visiting. Lord, we pray that even now, Lord, you would be preparing uh, not only the men we're going to play against, but all of those men that will be out in the yard hearing. We pray for the guards that will be out in the yard hearing. And Lord, we do pray that you would be preparing their hearts right now to receive the message four days from now, five days from now, six days from now. And Lord, that the word of God would just resonate in a place in their hearts that nothing else has been able to answer or to touch. And that lives would be saved, souls would be saved as a result of our efforts. Lord, we do certainly pray for safety as we travel, safety as we play. We pray for your heart and your mind, Lord, the right attitudes throughout the whole process, Lord, that you might be glorified. And Lord, we do want to just lift up that prayer that you told your disciples, if the Son of Man is lifted up, all will be drawn near. And certainly, we want to proclaim the gospel of a crucified Christ risen again. Uh, but in the same way, Lord, we want to glorify Christ and lift him up that all men might see him. And so, Lord, go before that group. Bless our time. Lord, we do pray Christ will be lifted up here in this gathering of saints. Lord, as we study your word, minister to the deep places of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we left off, uh, and we read it, but we didn't really dig into it. We left off around verse 29 of Mark chapter 1. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at that. But let me just remind you, it's been three weeks since we were last together, and we've been in the book now about four weeks together. So we are in, don't forget, we are in what is called Jesus' Galilean ministry. And so whereas it is Mark chapter 1, these aren't the first couple of events in Mark's uh, in Jesus' ministry. Um, and so we looked at John chapter 1 through John chapter 4. There was a period of about eight months, let's just call it a year, before this where Jesus had been ministering in Judea. That's where he was baptized. That's where he called some of his initial disciples. And he ministered down in that region for close to a year. Now he has returned to his home, essentially, which is the Galilee region. And here he's going to minister for about 21 months all right so between the two of them together we're looking at a period of over two years here of jesus's ministry mark uh, i i believe mark chapter one through the end of mark chapter nine is going to chronicle this galilean ministry so it covers a lot of time and a lot of material and this is the second year of jesus's ministry we might define this as his intensive discipleship program And so the Judean ministry, he's calling people. Who wants to come follow after me? John the Baptist is saying, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And people go following after him. Now that we are in this uh, Galilean ministry, this is where Jesus goes to those men and he says, leave your nets and come follow me. This is more of an intensive discipleship. These are the men that are going to, if you will, take over after Jesus is physically off of the scene. And so he's got to prepare them for that particular process. We saw in John chapter 141, they've already acknowledged he's the Messiah. 
So let's put up John 141. It says, Andrew first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found this guy. He's interesting. That's not what he says. He says, we have found the Messiah. We found the Christ. We found the anointed one. We have found the one sent by God to save people from their sins. You should come see him too. All right, so they've already recognized, at the very least, Andrew recognized who he was, and they began to follow along with him. Now in Galilee, Jesus says, I'm going to call you guys to go a step further. I'm not going to call you just to come and visit me every Saturday or every now and again when I'm preaching a message here. I'm going to call you to leave everything you're doing and come follow me and stay side by side with me so that I can teach you in the day-to-day of life. And so in Mark 1, 16, we read this, passing alongside of that sea, he saw Simon, he saw Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen, and he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. This is where he goes a step further. Now that journey first led them, we saw a few weeks back, to the synagogue. And there... Jesus began by astonishing, remember the word was used, astonishing the people by his teaching. Not the first time Jesus ever taught in a synagogue. We read in John, he taught in the synagogue in Nazareth, and the people chased him out of the synagogue in Nazareth. Remember, that's where they wanted to throw him off a cliff or something like that, and Jesus slipped through their hands. I think that's the scenario, the story there. But he taught in that synagogue, things didn't go so well. Here he is now in Galilee, and he's teaching in their synagogue, and the people there are astonished by his teaching. They're additionally astonished, we see in the passage, by the fact that he cast demons out of a man. Let me read that to you. It says, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and the man cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? With us, notice the man says, multiple demons inside of him. says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. That's another way of saying you're the Messiah. Holy means set apart and distinct. You are the distinct one sent from God to save people. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked the man, the demons there, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. No hocus pocus. No long incantations. No, you give me some money and I'll say some certain prayers for you which were common of those in the deliverance ministry of the Jewish people in that day, Jesus simply spoke to this man and the demons came out of him. And no wonder Jesus' fame, look at the next verse, verse 28, no wonder his fame spread throughout the land. He teaches differently, he delivers people from demons differently. Who is this man? His fame then begins to spread. Well, that brings us to where we left off. Service is over. What do you do when service is over? You go get lunch, right? And so service is over. They're going to make their way to Sunday lunch. Now, of course, it's Saturday lunch because they worship on the Saturday. That's their Sabbath there. And we read this quickly. Let me read it again, starting at verse 25. Immediately, Jesus left the synagogue, and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John, the four of them. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her, and he came, and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to, began to serve them. Verse 32. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. 
Now, we know this about Simon. Simon's another name for, you know, Peter. All right, so we know this about Peter, and Andrew is his brother, that previously they lived or they grew up in the town of Bethsaida. It was sort of a neighboring town. It would be Lawrence Township to Ewing, New Jersey, for instance, there. And we learn in John 1, 44, that's where they used to live. But at this point in their lives, they have relocated. So now they live in Capernaum. Capernaum was a slightly larger city than Bethsaida. It was a slightly, it was quite a bit larger fishing community than Bethsaida was. And we know that was their business. And so it seems they went where the people were and they relocated their business there to Capernaum. It also seems that Simon is either living with his wife's mom or she's there because she's sick. And so we know that Simon is married, Peter is married, and that Peter has a mother-in-law, which comes along with being married in most situations there. But one way or another, I like my mother-in-law. That wasn't a joke in any way at all. She's very nice to me. Uh, Anyway, Jesus and the others, they come back to this house, and among the other people that are there is this woman, this older woman, uh, certainly older than Peter and his wife, who is now sick. And she lay ill, as it says, with a fever. Now Luke, who by profession was what? He was a medical doctor. Luke tells us, he's the only one who tells us uh, a, a word of clarification on how sick she was. He says that she had a high fever. And we read that in Luke chapter 4, verse 38. And so this is the difference. You know, you've gotten fever. Some of you are just getting off of fevers now. I know. Summertime colds are the worst. And you, you have a 99 just feel a little kind of achy or whatever. You have 102, people start getting concerned. This is like in the 104 range where people are like, yo, what's going on? We should call the people to pray or let's get you down to the doctor, whatever it may be. She's in that particular situation there and she's down and out. If you've had a high fever, you know that you're just, you can't do anything. And so she's down and out for the count and Jesus now is face to face again with the evidences of sin. Just like when he was back in the synagogue and the demon was doing all that the demon was doing, he was face to face with some of the evidences of sin. Here now he's face to face with the evidences of sin in that she is sick. And if something's not done, she's going to go on and die. Now, my point is not she's sick because she sinned. My point is this, that all sickness, all disease, all death, all demon possession, all of those things are the result of sin in this world. And those things, when Jesus comes face to face with them, they move him so often to action. And that's what's going on in this particular instance here. Here they bring this particular woman to Jesus, and he's going to be moved to action. Jesus' primary focus of ministry when he was here on the earth in his coming was associated with the consequences of sin, dealing with the consequences of sin and the pain that is, this woman has because of her illness is one of those consequences. And seeming to know then that Jesus would do something about it, they make the plan, let's get Jesus into her presence. And so we read in verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told her about him. It doesn't seem like, oh yeah, mom's in the other room sick. Maybe Jesus would, you know, it seems like that was their plan. That as soon as they get there, oh, by the way, since you're here, it's like when a carpenter comes over your house you know, did you bring your hammer and tools? You know, I got a few projects. It's that, it's that general idea here. So verse 31, it tells us Jesus responds exactly as they expected he would. It says, he came, he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up, and the fever left her. 
and she began to serve him. Mark adds the fever left her. It immediately seems to leave her. As he takes her by the hand, lifts her up, she's good to go. Now, if you've ever been sick, like really sick, where you have this fever, you know it takes days to start feeling better. And so you ask people, you know, how you doing? I heard you were sick. I'm getting there, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And you're like, oh, little buddy. You know, and you're like, yeah, I'm still kind of tired or whatever. And you're just sort of meandering around the home, and you just don't really have the energy to jump back in. But notice her. It says that the, the fever left her. I think we could add, really, there, it immediately left her because she's up, and she's ready to serve and do what she needs to do. And so the touch of Christ then brought an instant healing to her. And an awareness of that healing brought grateful devotion. So she begins to serve. All right, the touch of Christ brings instant healing, and the awareness of that healing brings her to grateful devotion. And that grateful devotion is expressed in her glad service. Again, ordinarily, a fever leaves a person weakened, but she's immediately strengthened to begin to serve. And her response is I would suggest to you the exact same way that the Lord would have each one of us to respond. And so the way that she responds by immediately getting up and saying, how can I help other people? How can I help the Lord? Is how the Lord would have us to do. She immediately begins to serve the Lord out of a sense of gratitude. And I want you to notice how she serves here. Because I think most of us, we get it. Jesus saved our souls We should honor him with our lives in one way or another, at the very least by being nice to other people and making some sandwiches or something, as she is going to do here. At the very least, we all sort of get that. But I think what happens is many of us never really get started in our service to the Lord. And part of that is because, well, there's nothing we think, there's nothing really for me to do. And I think what happens is there's sort of this process. In our minds we think Jesus saved my soul from hell. I can't just make sandwiches for him. I got to really let him know how appreciative I am. Like join the mission field or something. That's really the only way to let him know how grateful I am. We think that there needs to be some grand gesture that will really demonstrate just how thankful we actually are. And so what do we do? We wait and we wait and we wait and we wait. And Lord, I'm ready. If you need me to do something big for you, I will do it. When in the reality is, notice what Peter's mother-in-law does. She, Jesus heals her. She's grateful. She immediately gets up and starts serving right where she's at. And where she is at is in the home of a, a bunch of, a crowded home of a bunch of men that have just gone, what do a bunch of men want? We just want food. You know what I mean? You put food out and you've, you've done what I needed you to do. And so she starts serving right there in our home. Has the Lord done a wonderful work in your life? Yes. I have to imagine, there's a couple hundred of us here, I have to imagine 180 of us, yes, the Lord has done a really good work in my life. And we know that, we acknowledge that. uh, What I would say to you then is start serving the Lord where you are at, in the ways that are immediately available to you. And as each one of us does that faithfully, what the Lord then does is bring additional opportunities. Uh, He makes them apparent to us where we can serve him. Because the reality is this. We think I need to do something big to let God know I really am grateful. The reality is this. The Lord is looking more at the posture of our heart than the size of our gift or the size of uh, the thing that it is that we accomplish. He's looking at the posture of our hearts. And if your heart is grateful 
and you serve him out of that gratitude, the Lord sees it, and he's honored by it, and he's blessed by it. That's what she does. She gets up and she serves. I think it's awesome. She continue, or It continues, verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. I pointed this out a few weeks ago. Don't miss the fact this is a very busy day. At the synagogue early in the morning, dealing with a demon-possessed man and all that's associated with that, the greetings, the talking, the hanging out after service and before, the walk back to Peter's house, the situation with Peter's mother-in-law. And then verse 32 says, At sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. All who were sick and oppressed by demons. Now, what are we talking about? Five or ten people? Look at verse, what verse 33 says. It says, The whole city had gathered at their door. The whole city had gathered either to be healed or to watch somebody get healed. This is a full day of ministry. And because of the rules of the Sabbath where people weren't able to move or carry people and all those things, by faithfully observing the Sabbath in the way they did, the people couldn't come until after the sun had set. And so they can't make their way to Jesus. I don't know what time. It was 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And Jesus, most of us would think, I'm getting my PJs on. The day is over. And the day is just beginning. Or the evening is just beginning for the Lord. And this is going to be a long evening of ministry for Jesus because he ministers long after the sun goes down. Again, as it says there, to the whole city that had gathered. And he keeps ministering. That, I would say, and I'm sure you might agree, I'm sure you might, but you probably agree, possibly agree, that's humbling. Because I think what I would do in that circumstance is tell Peter and Andrew, go out and put out that cone behind the last person in line we're not taking any more you know what i mean like you have to come back in the morning because i i just don't have the energy i just can't keep giving come back in the morning jesus will be here in the morning but imagine if you were demon possessed wouldn't you like to have one more night of relief and not have to wait till morning and if you were sick wouldn't you like the relief to come now and not have to wait until the morning and jesus just kept ministering and he kept ministering and he kept ministering and to, for us to, well he's jesus yeah, we can do that too. The Holy Spirit can empower us to minister beyond what we think we're able to do. And so we trust him. We look to him. Jesus put their needs above uh, his own. What Jesus would not do, look at verse 34. It says, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Jesus would put his needs, their needs above his own, but he would not allow the demons to testify as to who he was. Luke, again, going to that parallel passage, in Luke 4, he provides a little bit more detail into what's going on in that scenario. It says in Luke 4:41, the demons also came out of many crying, you're the son of God. But Jesus rebuked them, and he would not let them speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus' chief evangelist were going to be human beings. They were not going to be unclean or de demonic spirits. And so he silences them as he continues. Now look, before moving on, it says in verse 32, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Then we read in verse 34, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. Now Mark is not saying that some were brought that were healed, and some were brought that were not healed. Right? Because, if, again, if we compare the Luke gospel with Mark's gospel, 
we see that Mark is using in that instance the word many to speak quantitatively. Not many in the sense of many of them he healed, some he didn't, but many in the sense of a large amount All right, in this particular instance. That means there was a lot of people healed on this particular day. And so here's my question. If Jesus healed all that were brought to him on that day, and again, it says every one of them, does, does he continue to heal everyone that is brought to him on this day, today? I don't believe he does. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to set you up here. If Jesus healed all that were healed on that day, does he heal everyone who comes to be healed today? And the reason why I'll say no, well, wait a minute, why are you doing that? Then? Because you look at other passages in the scripture where people were brought that Jesus didn't heal. You look at other instances where Jesus passed people that were sick that Jesus didn't heal. All right, so what we want to be careful with is we don't want to look at this passage and walk away concluding that everyone brought to Jesus will be healed of their sickness or everyone, their demon possession in the instance that we have here. Because there are those that teach that that is the case, that it is God's desire that everybody be healed. Eternally, yes, every one of us will be healed. But here on the earth, no. There are some that teach that God desires to heal everyone, and if a person is not healed, then it's the problem of the person, that the person didn't have enough faith, or the person must have some secret hidden sin. And if they would just get real with God and go confess those things, then God would heal them. The Bible doesn't teach that. And so again, does Jesus heal everyone? The answer is, despite the fact that he does in this instance, the answer is no. Jesus does not heal everyone. And so while we believe that Jesus physically can heal anyone of anything, we know that in some cases it's not his will to bring physical healing. Amen? Amen. It's important that we understand that. Because when we're in that circumstance and we're desperate for healing, either for ourselves or for another, and we bring to God our heartfelt, honest, sincere prayer, Lord, please heal them. And they are not. Many people then, their faith is shaken. Their faith is rocked. Well, then why bother believing? But the reality is this. Jesus can heal anyone of anything. But sometimes it's not his will to do so. And it's in those particular instances where we need to pull back and say, Lord, I'm still crying out for you to bring a healing, but I trust you. It's almost like Jesus' prayer in the garden when Jesus prays for deliverance from what is about to come. But then he, he wraps it up with, but not my will, but yours be done. Right? It's that idea here. And that requires trust on our part that God is good and God is sovereign. That God can do it. That's his sovereignty. And that God is good, even if he doesn't do it. And the Lord needs to increase our ability to trust him in that area. And so if that's an area that you struggle with and you just wrestle with it, why, God, why? I encourage you, go to the Lord. Look at him for his goodness and allow him to build your faith in who he is. Amen? Let's go on. Verse 35. Thirsty. It says, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark... Jesus departed and he went out to a desolate place. And there Jesus prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, well, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out their demons. Now, 
Jesus had a long day of ministry the day before. I think we would all excuse him if he chose to sleep in on this particular day. He's probably tired. He probably ministered late into the night. But rather than sleeping in, notice what Jesus does. And I'm going to push some buttons now with those of you that like to sleep in. But notice what he does. It says very early in the morning. I think in one of the other, ver- in one of the other um, gospels, it says while it was still dark. Very early in the morning, before even the sun had come up, Jesus goes so that he can get alone somewhere and pray. It says it right here, while it was still dark. Notice this, Jesus sacrificed more sleep time for more prayer time. Amen? No. She said, nope. (laughs) Nope, it's not true. Jesus sacrificed more sleep time for more prayer time. And if the Lord felt the need to set aside time to get alone with his Father, how much more each of us? If Jesus himself felt the need to set aside time or to make time to get alone with his Father, how much more so each of us? Jesus rose very early in the morning. He went out to a place where he would be free from distraction so that he could spend some time in prayer. And for him to do that required sacrifice on his part. Jesus's life on earth was one of ceaseless service. That's his life on earth, constantly serving other people here. Mark, of all the Gospels, I think points that out the most. And yet, he found abundant time for quiet communion with his Father. And of course, where did he find it? He found it while other people were sleeping. And many Christians, they fail to have a quiet time. let's just be honest if you've struggled with a quiet time sometime during your walk with the lord would you just raise your hand having a consistent quiet time we all know we should we're convinced i do got to take that time i got to read my bible more i got to pray more or whatever we come back from a retreat we're determined we're going to do it and we do it for about a week or two weeks or so and then we kind of like drift back into it and then our quiet time becomes well i prayed before dinner and when i laid my head down i said a prayer before i dozed off whatever and so we all know we need to do it but many christians fail to have a quiet time because they say well i don't really have time to have a quiet time notice what jesus does here jesus makes time now some of you are probably thinking i wish he was still on vacation all right referring to me here all righty but jesus makes time he got up early and he went out to a desolate place to pray now uh, here's going to be a good news for some of you i'm not saying you have to have your quiet time first thing in the morning. I'm saying that's when it has to be. Jesus did it first thing in the morning. You must do it first thing in the morning. But I do think there's some wisdom in doing it first thing in the morning. Because here's what I notice in my life. If I do, when I have a quiet time, whenever it is during the day, I'm sort of energized, I'm strengthened, I'm feeling nice, I'm in a good mood, I can deal with my circumstances. I don't want that to fade away for eight hours while I'm sleeping. There's nobody I need to be nice to while I'm sleeping. I want to use that time while I'm awake for eight hours to be nice to people here. All right, so that's just one general idea. But I think there's some wisdom in doing it nice and early because you don't get text messages at 5 a.m. And you don't really get emails at that particular time because most other people are still resting. And the phone's not going to ring and the kids aren't going to come and they're not going to ask for breakfast unless you make too much noise getting up then they get up and you're like, man, or whatever. I used to have that time. And I was committed when I was, when my kids were little, I always wanted to get up before they got up. I used to say, I used to get up early in, 
I used to beat my kids up early in the morning. And what I meant by it was, like, beat them, you know, and that didn't sound right, so I stopped saying that. But then, like, you know, you would creak the floor because you walked on the wrong board that you knew would creak, and then the kids would be like, great, it's time to get up, and they'd come, and you're like, yeah, that's great, and I'm so happy to see you, or whatever it may be. But you want to get up early, no text, no kids, no emails, no phone calls uh, at that particular point in the day. I think if each one of us took a little bit of inventory of our life, and I think that's a helpful thing. You know how you budget your money? And so you look like, where did all my money go? And then you start writing it down. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I spent that much on coffee uh, and things like that. I think if we all budgeted our time and we just jot it down for a week, how we spent 10, all 10 minutes, you know, the 10 minutes of every, get it, you know what I'm talking about? And, and we just sort of jotted that down. We would look at his social media two hours I spent two hours scrolling no I didn't that's impossible TV I watched TV for 32 hours this week that's impossible no way but then you go back and you look at the chart and you're like yeah I did watch that show and it is shark week and I didn't watch a lot you know on shark week or, or things like that so you you begin to look I scrolled social media how much time I spent on TV even if you get in your car and you drive, my car is never silent. I always got something on. I'm listening to the news, I'm listening to this, I'm that, whatever it may be. And how many times you just turn off your radio and drive to work for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, how that could be a profitable time. And so I would recommend this for all of us. Any of us here that are thinking, I just don't have time to have a quiet time. For one week, just jot down how you spend your time and go back and look at that and say, all right, is there a place where I can kind of push this out. Now, I'm going to just tell you, I like to watch TV at night. And so, you know, we, we hit nighttime, everyone's kind of in bed, my wife and I will watch a show or something like that. I like to do that. But for me to do that, in my mind, I want to make sure that I've already spent my time in the Word. And so I love doing it first thing in the morning, so then, so to speak, the rest of my day is fit free, if you will. Does that make sense? There, and then I feel comfortable, like, you know what, I've, I've spent my time with the Lord, and I'm going to watch and see what happens on West Wing or whatever it may be. All right. So it's not really a matter of not having time. It's a matter of not making time. Prayer, Bible study, biblical meditation, not just sort of nothing meditation, biblical meditation, they're not always a matter of personal convenience. All right. They're rather one of self-discipline and sacrifice. And it will almost always cost us something to have those times in our days and in our lives. And again, I'm not trying to guilt us into having a quiet time. Notice this about the Lord. The Lord didn't get up early to go to a desolate place to be alone with his Father in prayer because he had to do that. He didn't have to do that. He was always at one with his Father. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because he knew that it was spiritually restorative. When you're physically tired, and you lay down for a bit. You lay on your couch, you lay on your bed. That's physically restorative. You're strengthened again. You couldn't take another step yesterday. My feet are killing me. Whatever, but you lay down for eight hours, and now all of a sudden you're strengthened for what's ahead of you. In the same way, when we have those times with the Lord, it's spiritually restorative. We're rejuvenated, we're strengthened to go forward. And the Lord looked forward to it. It wasn't a burden to him. It was a place of restoration for him. Now, before I move on, I want to consider just a second reason why 
many Christians avoid a regular quiet time with the Lord. And that is they, they've made the time, they've committed, but they conclude after a couple of weeks or so, I, didn't, I don't get anything out of it. So I read my Bible, you know, I got one of those charts and I kind of read through and I don't get anything out of it. Lots of believers do what they need to do. I'm sure many of us in this room, we do what we need to do. We set our alarm or we carve out some time at lunch or whatever it may be. But after doing so, we find it's not very beneficial. I want to suggest to you three things. Number one, about a quiet time. Number one, the heavens aren't going to part every time you sit down to have a quiet time. And so sometimes we sit down to have a quiet time and, you know, I didn't hear God's voice and I certainly didn't get any goosebumps today. And so it was just a waste of time. The reality is the heavens aren't going to part every single time. And so sometimes you sit down and you're like, yeah, it was good. It was good. It was great. It was good. It was good. You know what I mean? It was just good. It wasn't fantastic. It wasn't like, you know, the thunder and lightning or whatever. It was just nice. It was good. And then you move on with your day. Sometimes just sitting and settling is the point of a quiet time. Secondly, if you find you're not getting much out of your quiet time, perhaps you might want to consider varying the approach of your quiet time. So what are you doing when you get there? There's two different words in the New Testament for pray, or he prayed, things like that. Two different words that are used in the New Testament. The word here that is used to describe Jesus went to a desolate place to pray is not the word that is used when you ask for a bunch of things. And so sometimes we come to prayer and we have the long list and we say, God, I want you to do this and do this and do this and don't forget that and so on and so forth. That's a different word than is used here to describe what Jesus is doing. The word here, if it matters to you, it's the word, I don't even know how to say it. It's prosaukomei. All right? And it speaks of entering in not only for God's gifts, but ultimately for God himself. All right? So it's a different word. There's where we ask for things, and then there's the word of coming into God's presence just to be with him. And that is the word used here. It's a word that speaks of desiring to commune. And so I would say this. I would suggest this. If you're not getting anything out of your times with the Lord, perhaps that because your times with the Lord really aren't about meeting with the Lord at all. Maybe your times with the Lord have sort of devolved into simply bringing your list. God, I need him to get saved and her to get saved and he's sick and I need this job. And it's just a list of the things that you want. I would suggest if you go back and you look and that describes you, move away from praying for things and instead begin looking to commune with him. So move away from saying, Lord, help me get this and Lord calls me to do that. And instead... Like David prayed, Lord, search me, know me, try me, see if there's any wicked way within me. Commune with him, come into his presence. Get away from solely presenting your list and just spend time with him. Now, there is a place, and that's why the word is used in the New Testament. There is a place to bring our request, but there should always be a balanced approach to prayer. And so it is healthy to just simply spend time thinking about the Bible uses the word meditating. Unfortunately, in our day and age, that means something different with the Eastern influence and things like that. But meditating, as far as the Bible is concerned, is think about, mull over, consider the implications, chew on, think about God's goodness. Spend some time meditating on the character 
of God. Spend some time praising him for who he is and what he has done in your life. That is restorative. Then I would suggest spend some time confessing sin. The scripture says this, Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so perhaps another reason why you don't feel there's some breakthrough as you come into the Lord's presence or are trying to come into his presence, maybe it's because you're holding on to and you're walking in unconfessed sin. And so spend time confessing known sin like David just did. Ask the Lord to search out your heart. Maybe there's some secret areas, hidden areas of sin, blind spots in your life. Let the Lord put his finger on those things and let him show you. And then when he does, confess those sins. Again, our times with the Lord need to be balanced. Spend some time adoring him. Spend some time confessing sin. Spend some time giving thanks for all he has done in your life, particularly salvation. And after you've done all that, make your request known unto him. Now, you're probably thinking, that's a lot of things to remember. And we're fortunate. Is anyone thinking that? Nobody? All right, well, then we'll move on. No, there's memory devices to help you. I don't know how to pray. How am I going to remember those things? There are two memory devices that I have found to be helpful. One is the word pray, where the P stands for praise, the R for repentance, the A for asking, and then the Y for yielding. And so that's a good pattern in your times of prayer, where you praise the Lord for who he is, you repent of sin in your life, you make your request known, and then you yield your life to his will. Another one is the acronym there of ACTS, where the A stands for adoration, the C for confession, the T for thanksgiving, like offered thanksgiving for all God is and what he has done. And then finally, the S stands for supplication, which means to ask. And so again, it's one of those memory devices that you can use there. But the importance is balance in your time of prayer. Now, a third and final point about meaningful quiet times, my last one. The time of balance or the idea of trying to keep a balance isn't just in prayer. And so our quiet times should include a time of prayer. They should include a time of worship where you sing or you just simply recite um, praise to the Lord. They should include a time in the Word. They should include a time of talking to the Lord, but also a time of listening to the Lord. And as you look at your quiet time, if you find the majority of your time is spent talking to the Lord, well, then you want to change that up and spend some time listening to the Lord. And if you find the bulk of your time is in prayer, well, then look to spend a little more time in the Word. And if your time is almost extensively or exclusively in Bible study, well, change that up a bit and start spending some of your time in prayer and in worship, balanced during our times. Does that make sense? We're going to send some stuff out during the week. Uh, through the e-news thing that will kind of help you be thinking about these things and evaluating what's my prayer time, what's my quiet time look like and how might the Lord want to impact that. So look for that during this week. Now let's go back to the passage in verse 35. Notice we saw Jesus got up, he went out to a desolate place to pray. The story goes on, verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him, they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, you can imagine that the folks begin mulling about outside of Peter's house. I'm not waiting in that long line. I'm getting there early. Uh, And so, you know, they're getting there. But there's a decent time to do things. We were having a debate recently. What's the appropriate time to call someone on the phone in the morning? 
and when is it too late to call someone in the evening? I think 9 a.m. is the time to call, start calling people, and like 8 p.m. is like people are in bed. You can't call after 8 p.m. here. All right. I don't know what you think. It doesn't really matter. But these guys are here. These guys are mulling about outside of Peter's home. They got there early, so they'll be first in line. But they certainly don't want to, you know, knock on the door too early while people are still sleeping. Eventually, it tells us everyone is looking for you. So the whole town is gathered together again, the throng of individuals. And it gets so big that Peter realizes, i got to go out and find Jesus. I don't know where he went this morning here, probably to get donuts or something. But where Jesus is, i got to go find him. And so they go looking. Now, we don't know why Peter feels compelled. Maybe he's embarrassed. I think if you look at other passages of Scripture, I think part of Peter's motivation here is Peter sees something good is happening. There's some momentum going on. And we better find Jesus and ride this momentum into the White House, into the palace or whatever. Remember Jesus, Peter's thoughts and all the disciples' thoughts about what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah is that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom somewhere. And here are all the people. Clearly, this is God's doing. And so we better get Jesus because these people are going to start leaving. And we better get Jesus now so that they will respond as we want them to. I think it's reasonably safe to assume that here. And so Jesus, or Peter then, he goes, he finds the Lord. The Lord is in the presence of the Father, and Peter interrupts. <laughs> That's always a fun thing. And so he interrupts there, his time. He tells him, everyone is looking for you. Notice Jesus' response. And he says, look, everyone wants you. Jesus says, let's go to the next town. Everybody wants me in Capernaum. Let's head out to the next town here. Surprisingly, I think, Jesus doesn't go back to Capernaum where everyone is waiting for him. Instead, he begins to make plans to go to the many other cities that are scattered around the Sea of Galilee here. And notice what it says. Go to the next towns that he might preach the gospel there as well. Because that is the reason why, and Jesus says it, that's the reason why Jesus had come. The reason why Jesus came was to go to a cross. It wasn't to go to hospitals and heal all the sick people or to go to the places where those that were possessed by demons were to deliver them. That happened during his ministry, but that was sort of a bonus to his ministry. His ministry was to go to the cross and to preach the gospel of the cross. And based on the fact that Jesus decides to leave Capernaum so that he could preach that gospel other other places it seems evident that everyone that is looking for him isn't looking for him to preach they're looking for him to do healings and and other wonders and things like that that was their focus it was not jesus's focus and so jesus jesus moves on from there and seeing then that the popular movement in capernaum was shallow and it was focused primarily on things that jesus wasn't primarily focused on Jesus leaves that area and he goes to do what he is focused on preach preaching the word communicating to the people that they should repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand remember Mark chapter 115 just like three weeks ago we were looking at this verse here it says Jesus came in to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God repent he says for the kingdom of God is at hand that was his focus that the people might believe the gospel there's a place for healing miracles There's a place for the supernatural. 
But those things were for relieving of human ministry, uh, misery. And, if you will, the confirmation of his teaching. That was his primary focus, his teaching. And so verse 39 goes on, and it says, And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus knew the reason for why he had come, so that he could go to the cross. And he could give his life on behalf of you and I. Amen? And every single person that came into contact with him, that was his primary focus, is that their soul would be saved, that their sins would be forgiven, that they could be brought back into a relationship with God that sin had hindered. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, that's what Jesus Christ has come to do in your life as well. Forgive you of your sins. Wash you. Cleanse you. And allow you to have a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you don't know about that, you don't understand what that means, you're not sure if that's happened in your life, afterwards, come on up. We'll have people up here, and they'll explain the gospel of Christ to you. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the example of Christ. Lord, we thank you that there are some things in here that perhaps are a little bit challenging to us. And, Lord, it's good for us to be challenged. But I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would take these words that the those seeds, if you will, of this passage would be implanted into our hearts and that they would bear much fruit. And Lord, from the uh, hour or so that we spend here this morning, Lord, eternal things will have happened for your glory. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like more information about the church, please visit ccmercer.com or come worship with us in Ewing, New Jersey on Sundays at 10 a.m.